Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe. This is episode four, and I am your host, writer-creator David Collins Rivera. This time around, we have an article about space stations. In Ejok's time, there are lots of constructed environments in outer space where lots of people live. Starships come and go with regularity, goods and services are exchanged, and many people live their whole lives without even seeing a habitable planet, let alone stepping foot on one. It's all good stuff, so we'll get rolling with it right after the update. This has not been the most productive season, writing-wise, I'm afraid. Getting back into the swing of things has proven challenging. I've only added about 10,000 words to draft one of all he surveys since the last time I spoke to you. I did, however, work a bit on typesetting Book 2 Street Candles, so it'll be ready for print-on-demand at some point. That's a big job, or at least I'm finding it such, and I've only been working on it haphazardly since it's not exactly a pressing issue, but yes indeed, progress has been made. To be perfectly honest, too many non-cavalcade commitments have been getting in the way. That wasn't clear before, but it is now, so it's going to change. Book 4 has to be my first priority going forward. It's been a slow recovery from that illness I spoke of last time, and believe it or not, I'm still not over it. I may be looking at some sort of pervasive hearing issue. We'll see. As a result, projects got shifted around. Some received attention simply because they were easier to work on while convalescing. Others got pushed back. But that was then, this is now, so it's time to get some work done. Current status. I'm at just about 50,000 words for draft one of all he surveys. Now that is 10,000 words off the mark that I said I was shooting for last time, so feel free to laugh. Next goal, 70,000 words by episode 5 of this podcast. I'll report my results next time in triumph or shame, and you may cheer or jeer as you will. In the Star Drifter universe, at least during the period of time covered in the books and short stories, artificial manufactured settlements, space stations if you will, are extremely common. No one, in fact, has a decent idea of how many of them there actually are, especially out in frontier space where loyalties to the four supernations might be tenuous at best. Some so-called experts estimate that a hundred billion people live upon stations throughout settled space. Some say the number is much higher. Census-taking in the future is problematic for a number of reasons, including, but hardly limited to, political concerns and continual migration. Even the Big Four are unclear as to the population size of their own stations, seen collectively. Station models and other structures modified into permanent settlements vary so widely in form and style that even coming up with a widely accepted definition of them has proven challenging. 
Stations can be anything from tiny zero-g one-person satellite units in orbit around a lonely planet or star, all the way up to the heroically sized mega-settlements of Greenbelt system. Old converted starships, O'Neill colony designs, spherical constructions, rings, tubes, diamond shapes, excavated asteroids, and much more exist, and are inhabited by people just going about their daily lives. The Star Drifter tales mostly take place around the borders between Ain, corporate space, and the Empire. In this region, a couple of station design styles are more common than others, so those are what I'll focus on today. But understand, this only scratches the surface. If one can imagine it, there's probably a station like it out there somewhere. On the small side, we have a simple design type known as a high dock. High docks are generally ring-shaped, relying mostly on centripetal force to simulate gravity, about which I'll talk more in detail in a bit. These small to medium-sized stations are generally used as docking ports for ships and boats, as opposed to being actual communities or permanent settlements. Found mostly in orbit around planetary or stellar objects, as well as at or near the jump point of a star system, or even in attendance to other larger colony stations, high docks may or may not have any full-time staff or residents. Generally, a few dozen personnel on up to, say, a thousand or so, are required to operate a high dock, depending upon its size and exact function. Most exist to service space vessels that come and go, and to process cargoes, passengers, and crew. Much larger versions of high docks, sporting permanent, if transient, populations, actually do qualify as communities, independent states, or colonies of already established subnations. The sprawling, loosely structured, and seemingly ever-growing Bantu stopover, which began life as a simple fueling port sitting between star systems and Ain space, is one such. Dedicated military stations exist in abundance but some of the larger civilian stations are as big as cities, with millions of permanent residents. Military centers can be established on such structures alongside the civilian population because of various strategic elements, as well as easy access to trade goods and commercial transport. Fort Con Fleet Hospital on Dealey Waypoint, featured in Street Candles, is one such example. Asterov Dispatch Base on Sousa Station in the Dubin Binary Star System, as featured in Open All Night, is another. The largest human-made structures in space in this time period are the aforementioned Greenbelt Agricultural Stations. Greenbelt System is centered by a giant red-orange star. It has 33 natural satellites that qualify as planets, eight of which are gas giants and one a brown dwarf. These satellites, in turn, collectively have hundreds of moons. None of Greenbelt's small, rocky planets come close to having one Terran G. One of them has three times Earth's gravity, the others are less than one-half G. And none of these fall into the so-called Cinderella Zone, where liquid water could exist on the surface. Therefore, Greenbelt has no terraformed worlds. Instead, 
Five very large cylindrical space settlements share an extended orbit that's just a few hours inside the gravity well from the system jump point. At this distance from the Greenbelt primary, we're talking about an orbital circumference of over a hundred billion kilometers. So the stations, massive though they are, have plenty of elbow room. Intrasystem transport from one station to another involves starships rather than non-jump capable transport boats. It is much faster to ride out a few hours to the edge of the well, star jump across the length of Greenbelt to the jump point nearest the destination settlement, and ride back in than it ever could be making the trip via normal space. Such a voyage might take months or even years. Using star jump, Shuttling between stations generally takes less than half a day, and there are regular routes to each and all. Now, I describe these stations as human-made, but in fact they were almost completely constructed via automated means using locally sourced materials. Swarms of space-borne construction bots map, target, mine, and sometimes even completely disassemble cometary, asteroidal, and even planetary materials, including the many moons. Products such as silicate varietals, processed ceramics, and refined metals are derived from these raw sources, and in turn, further processed into useful construction materials. Hydrocarbon analogs, complex composites, and organic products of many kinds are also produced by the older stations as byproducts of their farming industries, which in turn get used in the construction of newer stations. The oldest and smallest Greenbelt satellite is approximately 200 kilometers in length. Four new stations are currently under construction, each of which has at least 10 times the internal surface potential of the largest model currently in service. Even with legions of tireless machines on the job that are mostly AI controlled, construction time for such structures is measured in years. Gravity emulation on stations can fall into one of four categories. One, Zero gravity. Despite the ubiquity of artificial and simulated gravity technologies, quite a few stations actually do without. This can be because of size, available power, or the intended design or function of the place. Most automated platforms do not have gravity. An unknown number of covert military listening posts also do not, so as to reduce their sensor footprint to a minimum for the sake of stealth. 2. Centripetal Force Simulation, or CFS. This is the oldest and by far most reliable form of gravity emulation in use, since it will continue to operate even in the face of a total power loss. From a terminology standpoint, this form is considered to be a simulation of gravity, not some sort of artificial version of it. Stations must be designed with CFS in mind, requiring them to be ring, wheel, or tubular in shape. A few spherical stations with partial CFS do exist for specialized functions, with gravity simulation being strongest at the station's axial equator, reducing and dropping off to zero as the poles are approached. 
CFS involves spinning a station or part of a station in such a way and at such a velocity as to throw everything inside it away from the center via centrifugal force. Gravity simulation comes in the form of centripetal force of the solid decking underneath a person's feet pushing back against the centrifugal force. The apparent sense of up and down is dependent upon the interplay of these two forces. Standing upon the deck is the simulation. Being thrown from the axial center of the station is not. Being flung out from one thing is not the same as falling down towards something else. Also, keep in mind that anything or anyone suspended above the inside surface of a station with CFS independent of its spin, such as being in or coming from the location of the station axis, is in fact in zero gravity. Matching speeds and vectors with the inside surface of the station well enough for a safe landing can be problematic. Not all stations have enough overhead space available for this to be much of an issue, of course, while others definitely do. CFS is dependent upon the rate of spin and the size of the station. Something akin to one human normal gravity is standard throughout space for obvious reasons, but professional athletes, space-born emergency service specialists, and certain military forces sometimes train for a time under higher simulated gravity levels. 3. Artificial Gravity, or AG AG is a fictional technology which could be said to be the cornerstone tech development for the Star Drifter universe. And yes, the terminology for it is artificial rather than simulated. AG is so fundamental to this series and has had such an impact upon its made-up history that this tech, all on its own, deserves a dedicated episode. But this ain't it. Through quantum manipulation of the so-called strong force between atoms and their constituent particles, an attractive effect can be induced in non-quantum or ordinary matter and plasma within a designated area. Charged particles and energy are less affected. This causes matter in said area to be pulled toward the AG apparati under the decking at whatever rate is desired. One Terran G is standard, though there are many exceptions. When AG first became widely distributed, there were a number of large stations built utilizing this technology as the sole form of gravity emulation. Several accidental and a couple deliberate power losses in these stations resulted in an astounding amount of injury and damage to people and property. These disasters made it clear that something more reliable was required. CFS was well understood by this point and had been considered the old-fashioned technology for gravity emulation. That opinion evolved to one where CFS was the standard method and AG was considered a tool for specific jobs. By EJAC's day, purely AG systems tend to be found only in small stations that don't house people on a regular basis and certain specialized scientific and military space structures. Note that it is still common to see AG as the sole form of gravity on ships and boats, unless they follow the CFS design model. We'll cover space vessels and their designs in a future episode. 
A subsystem of AG are the so-called inertial dampening systems. These are AG units in the bulkheads and overheads of ships and sometimes stations that pull on all objects in their areas of effect in the exact opposite direction of inertia whenever the vessel changes direction or has some outside force play upon it. This allows for quick increases and decreases in velocity, as well as sudden changes in vector without causing damage to people or objects inside. 4. Mixed Gravity System, or MGS. Now get ready for an alphabet soup explanation here. As the name implies, MGS utilizes a mixture of CFS and AG technologies. Stations that have MGS do spin, just like those that are CFS only, but they also have AG installed so as to smooth out the experience within. This allows areas like the central hub of a wheel-shaped station, which would normally be in zero or microgravity, to have full or partial gravity. Tall buildings in such stations can have diminishing gravity the higher you go. Installing AG on the upper floors can make it more comfortable to live and work in them. And, even in the event of a power failure, CFS is still in effect. As a result, MGS is becoming a more popular design choice as time goes by, being the best of both worlds, and is especially common in the Empire. Large starships and boats designed in the CFS style tend to follow the MGS emulation model as well, using AG to augment or stabilize the simulated gravity zones throughout. Did you catch all that? Now then, many civilian stations have star jump engines installed, technically making them ships. The reason for having star jump is for delivery's sake. Situations like Greenbelt aside, a large number of stations are not site-built, but rather are constructed in specialized manufacturing, fabrication, and assembly centers in space. These are much like shipyards, but even larger. The stations are then delivered to purchasing customers in designated star systems under their own power. Once delivered, the star jump engines are often uninstalled and sold on as used. Nearly all military stations follow this design and delivery principle as well for the sake of rapid deployment, though the engines are usually retained and kept in good working order. Because of this, it's not unusual for military stations and all supporting craft and personnel to star jump to different locations in space as mission requirements change. Most military assets are in flux, therefore, and can be relocated to wherever they are needed. In modern terms, if you can imagine a place like, say, the U.S. Army Base Fort Bragg being able to move itself anywhere in the world instantaneously, whenever desired, the strategic advantage of this practice becomes clear. Though it's unheard of for major star bases to deploy to the front lines of a battle, keeping them only one or two jumps back, instead of, say, 30 or 40, makes a massive difference in command and control, as well as logistics. By the time of the Star Drifter stories, it is estimated that more than half of the human race lives upon artificial structures in space, as opposed to planetary bodies of some kind. 
Considering the financial costs involved and the general hit or miss quality concerning the long-term success of terraforming projects in general, that percentage is expected to increase over time. And we'll do an episode on terraforming. Don't worry. Stationers are raised with the skills to survive in this type of environment, including how to cope with emergencies. They practice vac suit and fire drills all their lives, and see these things as being no different to how ground-based populations are careful about swimming, being out in the cold, or staying in the hot sun for too long. Of course, accidents do occur from time to time and are considered tragic when they do, but for stationers, these are simply dangerous to be acknowledged and navigated. Natural disasters are effectively unknown, so the focus is usually placed on basic vacuum survival training, maintenance of machinery, sensible hazard warnings, and regular mental health screenings for every citizen and long-term visitor. This because one unbalanced individual in a restricted area can endanger the whole population. Taken together... These basic safety practices are the foundation of life in outer space, and every successful station practices them continually in one form or another. While there are definitely some exceptions, life aboard most civilian space station settlements has a decidedly urban character to it. There are streets, apartment buildings, stores, neighborhoods, government offices, factories, parks, clubs, hotels, recreation centers, and pretty much everything else a modern city might have. Each station is unique, though, with a character all its own. Some have a high crime rate, others are little more than massive tourist attractions. Some stations feel like truck stops, others like airports. Some are comparatively rich. Others are economically depressed. Some have corruption issues. Others have privacy issues. While still others enjoy a safe, comfortable, middle-class existence. Some are new and shiny. Others are old and falling apart. Your experience on one station won't likely reflect the next. Among the wide variety of design choices available you can find constructed settlements that are big and airy inside. This sort emphasizes common open spaces for the population. Generous piazzas in the Terran European style, gardens, playgrounds, fountains, statuaries, and pavilions for open-air concerts are all standard. Larger, often tubular stations with plenty of real estate can even have city and country zones along with closed-off forest reserves with animal and plant life in abundance. On the other hand, another common style is one that emulates tall housing projects, except that rather than discrete high-rises, whole sections of the ring are effectively one solid building, housing tens of thousands of people. Living quarters in such places are nearly identical, varying only slightly for the sake of the rent that can be charged. The overbearingly practical quality of such stations generally mark them as cheap and unpleasant, but they are profitable and several billion people call such places home.
Stations with this character are considered slums by many people, but that epithet is a generalization, missing many important cultural elements that can distinguish these places from each other. Yes, housing for the poor exists on such stations, but so does everything from happy communal living to serious religious retreats that are not unlike huge monasteries. All of these setups are possible following this crowded design. Finally, and as a side note, deep space exploration vessels intended for human crews are usually made along the same basic designs as commercial stations. Most of them are high dock size and use MGS as a gravity system, that is the mixed system with both artificial and simulated gravities. These vessels have special foci on redundancy and general robustness, and therefore have a particularly industrial quality to them. Crews of several hundred are not uncommon. Most vessels of this sort have long-range star jump engines installed and can refine or manufacture their own fusion and chemical fuels, life support components, and replacement parts. Explorers are often portrayed in the media as romantic figures with lives full of adventure, living in clean, modern cities traveling to unknown and curious places. The reality mostly revolves around a long series of cold passage sessions sequentially punctuated by frenetic deadlines to achieve assigned and sometimes unrealistic survey goals before the next scheduled star jump occurs. Goals often preset by corporate management back home long in advance of the cruise itself. Despite outward appearances, therefore, life aboard an exploration ship has little resemblance to life aboard a station. So that's it for this episode. There's a lot more that could probably be said about space stations, but much of it would be specific to particular models and wouldn't really help in understanding them as a whole. The key takeaway here is that for a large swath of the human race, and likely for the vast majority in coming years, living in the cold vacuum of space is absolutely normal. Most see dwelling upon a planet as exotic or even magical. Stationers represent the highest number of tourists to vacation spots in settled gravity wells because even in the future, and especially upon worlds with healthy biospheres, the grass is always greener. Next episode, we'll cover a subject that hasn't been given much attention in the Star Drifter stories and novels to date, namely Terra. What's good old Mother Earth been up to all these years? How are its people and environment doing by this point? What's life like upon the birthplace of humanity? And more importantly, what is its place among the nations and populations of outer space? Be here next time for a look at Earth of the future. I think it'll be fun, so I'll see you then. You have been listening to Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe, written and hosted by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. 
check out my site at www.cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash davidcollinsrivera, all one word. The theme music is a piece called Wicked Ways by Kilobyte. That's spelled K-I-L-L-A-B-Y-T-E, featuring Danica Nadeau, and is available through No Copyright Sounds at ncs.io slash wickedwaysid. This podcast contains discussion about fictional works and characters and is not meant to portray any person living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Voice from the Void is copyright 2018 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening. Take care.